There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you were looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen in for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hello, this is Chris Cooper and a huge welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. Brilliant to be back with you again. Excited to uh, welcome uh, very shortly Jennifer Jordan. We're going to have a great conversation today, believe me, on, on Data for Good. Uh, before we, I introduce you to uh, Jennifer, let me say a big thank you to my guest last week, uh, Marcus Di Maria. Uh, Marcus was, um, I, th- I thought Marcus was an absolutely fantastic person to have a conversation with. We, we talked last week about, um, about making your money work for you. And uh, Marcus um, is a, an investment expert. He has a cryptocurrency club. And he talks about his uh, amazing life from being £100,000 in debt at 28 to uh, I've no idea what now, but he, he, he's inspiring and helping people um, all over the globe to make their money work for them. But really, I had a number of, um, of feedback from that, uh, from a number of different people who are finding that whole area fascinating. So, uh, today, uh, I'm going to welcome Jennifer Jordan. Um, welcome. Uh, great to have you on the show. And I want to thank uh, our uh, wonderful uh, supporter in, in Judy Robinette, who, who introduces me to the most uh, fabulous of guests. She's a wonderful lady. There's some three great interviews with her in the archive, uh, the last one on wisdom. And uh, her wise um, counsel uh, led to the introduction to Jennifer and uh, I, I really enjoyed my conversation with Jennifer a few weeks ago, and she completely opened my eyes to uh, the importance of data uh, in a way that I'd not really uh, considered before, and uh, how important it is to improving the world from you know, trust and transparency and through to artificial intelligence. Um, but this whole area of data is just opening up all sorts of opportunity right mm-hmm. now at a time when we really need to be uh, developing a better world. Um, Jennifer helps entrepreneurs and investors build valuable enterprises. Uh, she uh, spent, she cold-called asset managers and launched the first internet coverage at uh, a, a Pacific Northwest Investment Bank. She's managed investor relations for a publicly traded software company. Uh, she invested in early stage technology companies for the states of Massachusetts. And today she serves as managing director at um, Techstars for Barclays New York Accelerator and also um, female founders first program. And she's got a real passion mm-hmm. for helping people, um, female and also uh, uh, diverse people of diverse backgrounds to be able to get on and uh, and and develop amazing uh, businesses so um a wonderful welcome today to uh, to jennifer jordan thank you chris so much and thanks for calling out judy also because she makes amazing things happen from sun valley idaho so it's kind of incredible the connections that she's able to 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 broker and make happen so i'm really grateful to be here thank you no you're welcome and i've always loved that about Judy, and I think she's an example to us all, really, about how, you know, how, how connecting people and, and mm-hmm. helping them develop opportunities and um, how, how that actually is a, 
it's a wonderful strategy for life really and for um for you know furthering and developing your your influence and the ripple that you have on the world so uh, yeah we we love we love judy um so let's um let's find out jennifer a little about, about from you Where, whereabouts in the united states are, are you yeah right now i'm in Town, Massachusetts. So I'm part of Boston. I overlook the north end of Boston and uh, kind of right between MIT and the downtown of Boston. I oh, love it. So a city I've not visited actually. I think I think it's yeah. one of those cities. Where it's quite a good one for us to come out because not too far from from the United Kingdom uh, across the right. across the water to Boston, but uh, somewhere I must must visit one day. And so, are you from Massachusetts? Where, where were you brought up and uh, yeah, I was raised on the south shore of uh, Massachusetts, just south of Boston. And then, um, and I grew up there until I was about 18. And then I went away to college and I ended up being a transfer student out to the Pacific Northwest to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And I stayed there for nearly 30 years uh, until as a more gray-haired person, I decided that <laughs> Um, while I was running investor relations and commuting to California, that I should go back and do my MBA. And I came back to MIT, and that brought me back to the East Coast. Ah, brilliant. And what's, what's uh, Massachusetts like as a place to live? I love it. I love, um, for me, having all the seasons makes a big difference. Yeah. Although I'll say that I saw part of staying on the West Coast for so long was that the seasons are best at the same time in both New England and the West Coast, and it made it hard to, I don't want to leave Oregon at the time when it was, you know, also beautiful in the summer. We've just been, just been chatting before this to our sound engineer, um, Aaron, and who's in Phoenix, and it's, uh, it's a cool 90 to 100 degrees there for them at the moment. It just, uh, it's, it's fascinating <laughs> yeah. what, what, you know, what warmth means to some people. And that would be right. We're having very volatile New England weather where it changes by the hour almost. You can be in the 30s, then you can be in the almost 70s, and then a thunderstorm, and this much extremeness I don't remember from when I was a kid. I remember rain in May, but not this. I think that when we talk about data, maybe there's a place, which is not my expertise, to talk about climate and what, how much more we need to learn and do because it's moving so quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We, we, we're here April in England. It's been the frostiest April on record. So it seems to be so often that's, uh, you know, different. And, but it's also been, ex, on the whole, extremely dry uh, so normally it's lots of April showers and green grass and it's been, you know, parched. So you know, we're seeing frequent climate differential to certainly what I saw growing up. So, so tell me a little bit about your, you know, your life, you know, growing up in Massachusetts and how it led you to do what you do today, really. What was the, what was the, the sort of pivotal moments for you that maybe opened your eyes up to? Um, I think there are a couple different things when you say, okay, how did you grow up? I mean, I think I grew up like a, a standard New England child. I think as a, as a girl, I think that I was from a fairly conservative town. And so I didn't know things, for example, like when I got to college that there had been other women playing hockey, right? We had cheerleaders for hockey. Other schools had actual women playing hockey. If I had known that, I think my, there were pieces of my horizons that would have been even bigger. But one of the most um, changing experiences I had was my parents took a trip to Mexico when, when I was about 12. And they met a Mexican family there that had kids all our same ages. 
And in the course of taking my parents all around Mexico City and introducing them to the history and the culture, they proposed that we do our own private exchange. And that gave me the opportunity to really travel in Mexico. I was 12 years old. I spent the summer living there. I came back speaking Spanish fluently um, because my mom, my Mexican mom refused to speak English to me. And, um, and we are still now one large extended family. Um, But that, that experience also gave me a lot of view of, you know, both economic diversity, cultural diversity, and experience. And it opened up the opportunity for me to travel and live in other parts of the world from the U.S. Mm -hmm. And when I went to school in Oregon, the first jobs I had all out of college were all jobs um, working in the not-for-profit sector and um, working with migrant farm workers, managing migrant Head Start centers, a stint for the public defender's office, and then I landed in public broadcasting. And, and in those experiences, um, I think a couple things formed. One was that you want to make an impact in the world and you want to have, make the biggest difference that you can for people. And the, the one other ironic thing about my childhood is we recently helped my parents, you know, remodel to get to their forever home state. And in there, we found my first college essay. And I wrote about telecommunications and the way that it would connect us all and how revolutionary that would be and um, the opportunities it would make for greater understanding. I think we, we underestimated the opportunities it would make for greater uh, misunderstanding yeah. or deliberate misunderstanding, but, but that part. And so somehow this thing of multicultural economic vision, views of economic equality, inequality, and opportunity, and um, technology for me were somehow all intertwined. Mm-hmm. And when I was at, the, the, at public broadcasting, my last years at Oregon Public Broadcasting, the challenge that I saw was that public broadcasting had so much opportunity, but this particular station was just in the transition of to viewers like you. This is the early 90s, 92 to 94. And people really saw the, the, the resources available to them as very limited. And there was a lot of infighting about what you could do and what you could accomplish because the perception was resources were limited. And when I looked at that, it drove me to end up in the stock market which was the last place like this hippie child in some ways who decided that she was going to work with migrant farm workers and do these different paths expected to end up. But I ended up there because I really hit this place of how do you have maximum creativity and maximum impact to make value that changes people's lives? Mm -hmm. And how do you see all those interests? And for me, it was, it turned out to be the stock market. So I joined a small Pacific Northwest bank that was growing to become a a mid-tier bank, an institutional bank from mostly retail bank, and was fortunate enough to be there and help launch their first internet coverage. So that's kind of a long-winded explanation of my childhood and how it connects to, you know, capital and venture capital. But I, I thought, I don't know, hopefully it gives some perspective on me. 
Jensen, I, th- I, th- I always think it's fascinating how our, you know, our, our childhoods and our experiences and our background suddenly, it's when we get a little bit older, you start to realise that it's all connected in some way and that blend, that kind of symphony of experiences uh, enables us to add unique value, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how, how um, you're, you're the managing director at Barclays Techstars. Um, what, what um, you know, what their accelerator program, etc. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and how that how that fits in now to you know your sure. your, your blend of work and the stock market, etc. Sure. So from the from the stock market and then running investor relations for a large public company. Remember, in the early '90s, companies went public with only thirty million dollars of revenue. So that meant that when I was at the bank, um, I had to get to know entrepreneurs when they were first forming their companies. And then if we were lucky and we had a good relationship and we helped them find or raise capital at the point when they might go public, they might consider us to be one of their bankers, right? And at the very least, as somebody who worked on the equity research side, I would have a great relationship with management as an advisor and counsel and, and would have good, good resources for, you know, understanding the directions of the stocks and the landscape. So um, when I decided uh, after running investor relations that I had to look at what made my heart sing again, I thought back on all that time and I realized what I love most is that moment when you're with really young emerging companies and teams are being formed and they're trying to get off the ground and create value. And that drove me to go back to MIT to get my MBA and to join a venture capital fund. And I joined the state of Massachusetts VC fund, making direct investments, mostly uh, enterprise data-driven stuff. The best known one for people is probably Ginkgo Bioworks, which is a synthetic biology company. But what we saw was using robotics to accelerate the data capture and learning in their system. So it's really a data company. Mm -hmm. And um, I, give you all that background because in the course of sourcing and finding companies, I got involved mentoring teams from tech stars and looking at them for possible investments. And I came to believe that they had an amazing, they do an amazing job at teaching, especially first time founders, how to exercise the muscles for building a company. And um, last fall, uh, they had a unique opportunity with Barclays where Barclays said, Hey, we want to build a program for female founders and experiment with this program. And we chose to look at post seed stage, people who'd already raised some capital and were headed to their next stage of capital because we felt that um, a good deal of effort has been placed recently on trying to help women get to seed funding. We've barely moved the needle, though, in 10 years, but we've gotten more women funded than ever before. But since venture's grown as an asset class, our overall percentage hasn't, but our numbers have. So what we don't want is when they go to Series A, for them not to get their share of Series A capital. And what we know is there's a fall off there for women that's greater than the fall off at seed or greater than it should be based on the percentages at seed and the percentages that usually get A. So we wanted to focus in there. And um, it really gave me an opportunity to work directly with entrepreneurs and to female entrepreneurs and to showcase the amazing range of companies that they're building and to lean into the stuff that I love, which is around uh, around artificial intelligence and, and data 
and making change in the world, right? And the creativity of these founders was just astounding. So I did that for them. And then they asked me to come and do the same thing with their FinTech Accelerator uh, this, this spring. And we just took a class through the spring Barclays, New York Barclays Accelerator, uh, nine cohorts. And in there, you see, see a range of companies working in financial services, some of them that are also really impact and data-driven. But they're building, you know, they're out to build large venture scale enterprises, right? This is capitalism on some level, unfettered. But almost all of these entrepreneurs see another reason for solving their problems, which is a reason about the impact that they can have either on financial inclusion or on, um, you know, growing what people need to do a better job with, with data and using it more responsibly. So, so fits together for me personally really well. Excellent. Well, I think um, on that note, we're going to go to a commercial break. But, and after the break, we'll talk about uh, big data. I, I find our conversation fascinating and eye-opening. Uh, and uh, help me start to understand really how important data is and how important the kind of accumulation of it is and the understanding of it is to enable us to solve some of these big, big problems that we have at this, at this era when we feel like we're at a crossroads. So we're back again with you all in just a couple of minutes. Do join us after the break. I'm promising you a, a really fascinating section uh, coming up in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Jennifer Jordan. We're talking about uh, now about data and about data mm-hmm. for good. And Jennifer, just... Um, 
can, can you articulate to people, you know, why, why data is just so important now in terms of enabling us to impact the world and create product services, um, solutions to uh, some of the big problems that we face? Sure, sure. I mean, I think we've understood for a long time how important data is from, you know, from the first relational databases in the, in the late 90s and, and um, Oracle and business intelligence. But I think the part that, that is so important today is we are able to do so much more faster with that data. And the types of decisions that we can now automate with data are profound, and we have the ability to scale those decisions in a way that we've never seen before because of the scale that we achieve with the internet and the speed, right? And that means the impact that we can have um, with our automated decisions from those pools of data is profound. Mm -hmm. And it's also complex enough that as we make more and more models with data, we may not understand all of the consequences and the way that they connect together. So these really become sort of big systems problems with big impact. And you can see that in the stuff that's hit the headlines of the, the, the untoward accidents that we've had, right? When, when you see in the news that, oh, we didn't realize that a certain set of behaviors and interests has enabled uh, YouTube to accidentally promote images of young children to pedophiles, right? Who found at, at scale, that we never realized, right? The New York Times did a big article about that. Or when brands as strong and competent as Goldman Sachs and Apple can wind up on the front page of the San Francisco Examiner by making a credit uh, scoring algorithm that accidentally discriminated against women, right? And gave them lower ratings even when they had the same financial wherewithal as their spouses. So those are sort of the unintended consequences that come from the pools of data that we have and our biases or the lack of understanding of what's in that data and how it would reflect our biases. Mm-hmm. Now, the, you know, you, you can say, hey, all humans have bias. This is an inherent thing. But the, really the question is, what do we want to reflect when we reflect the best of ourselves and who's represented in that data? And what's the implication of having or not having uh, representation or in the weights and measures of how we're represented? Yeah. Is that, I, I mean, maybe that's a little um, abstract and I can try to make it more, con- I can make it more concrete with some other examples. I mean, so I think some examples you sort of shared with me was, for example, you know, how, how data accumulation is helping female heart patients. Uh, you know, yeah. obviously there's enormous data around COVID at the moment and, you know, enormous amounts of work around data, which is, you know, we're starting to understand even more and more this. Yeah. this we absolutely and- wouldn't have gotten to a vaccine without profound work in data and the clinical data that we had, data that we have about how, how uh, viruses behave, behave, data about how our, our immune system and antibodies behave, and then this enormous collaborative effort that we've never seen before, enabled by some of the technologies that have come into play to let us share data, uh, compute you know, in, with containers, 
just in a distributed way. None of those things could have happened. But in terms of the pool of data, some of the interesting things that we may not realize are where the gaps are. And one of the one of these founders, and I'll, I'll give a couple examples of founders who were in our female founder first program for Barclays. Um, one is uh, the company you just mentioned, Bloomer Technologies. This is two women, Alicia Chung and Asil Halabi, who realized that the data pool that we have about heart health, and because women were not included in clinical trials until 1993, is skewed. It doesn't represent women well. And one of the factors in that is that the current medical grade heart monitor that we use when you go to your doctor was built predominantly with data signals from men in those original clinical trials. And so for many, many women, one third of women worldwide are, will have heart disease of some type. When we go to the doctor and complain of palpitations, and get sent home with a medical grade heart monitor, we then come back to the doctor and say, hey, I still feel palpitations. The doctor looks at the data and says, well, we don't see anything, you're fine. But the reason might be that these are the women who are the outliers, who don't fit in that algorithm, whose data isn't well represented. So what Bloomer Health is doing is they're building medical grade heart monitor to capture 24-7 data about women's heart health, our respiration, our sweat and stress levels built in your everyday bra. And this will create a rich data set of very diverse data for women that we don't have. And that can have a profound impact on heart disease. So this is an example of one of those gaps. Another company, not in the female founders group, but a diverse founder is a company called 54Gene. And it was Joy Bulamwini from the MIT Media Lab and the Algorithmic Justice League who introduced me to 54Gene. Um, 54Gene is a company headquartered in Lagos, Nigeria, that's helping them make clinical health record systems. And at the same time, capturing the genetic diagnostic data um, from patients in Lagos, Nigeria. This is super important because today, We've got 20,000 plus diagnostics based on genomics for cancer and other diseases. But our current genomic database is about 87% white European male. So it's not a representative database, which means we don't really know if some of these diagnostics translate across broad different populations. Mm -hmm. And one of those missing gaps, uh, Black and African genomic data. And that's what the, this, this entrepreneur has realized. He can build one of the most valuable data sets in the world by assembling the largest database of African genomic data. Wow. wow. Yeah. So the, this, a lot of this vision and why it's coming from diverse founders and founders of color is because they have a different way of looking at the world and they see the gaps that may not be seen. Yeah. And the, the other reason it's so important is that, you know, like we talked about, that we're talking about healthcare, but these, these same issues happen in climate data. There's recent work out of MIT about where are the hot spots in our cities 
Well, they tend to be in the districts in the U.S. that in the 1930s and beyond were redlined. So they were discriminatory. Those are the places that are still our asphalt jungles. And for climate change, it means we're having a much deeper impact on people who are at a lower economic level of resource, right? And, and we can make change if we recognize that data. And the interesting thing is today, um, it's often that the people most affected by the decisions are driven by data, these automated decisions can sometimes be the people least represented by that data yes. and also least in charge of making the algorithms that drive the decisions. Yes. And that's, that, that is not my quote. That is from Alicia Chong of Bloomer Tech, who really so eloquently summed up the challenge. Yeah, my, my wife's a general practitioner and she was sharing with me some data a couple of weeks ago, which was showing in the United Kingdom where the ethnic populations are and uh, the absolute disproportional availability of healthcare in those areas compared to, you know, all the nice services when the, you know, the white areas um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and, and people just, you know, it's, it's, it's there, it's in plain view, but until that an analysis had been done, people weren't aware of it really. Yeah. Um, you, could, you, you kind of couldn't see it in the same way yeah. or you don't like, I think that there's so much value in these insights and there's also just things that because we haven't studied it, we don't know. So um, another healthcare example is uh, Eli Health up in Canada. She's making a saliva sensor that allows women to daily test their hormones. This is data that we don't have. Usually women's hormones, you just look at them when someone's having a problem or you're entering menopause. But we now know from some research that very broad fluctuations in our hormone levels daily are tied to depression, to heart disease, to early onset dementia. And we don't have good information because we've never tested women's hormones daily because it's expensive and used to be only blood-based. We don't know things like whether you should be on a hormone replacement therapy or on an antidepressant because mm. we haven't built that data set. So there's so much value to be created um, with the, the new capabilities we have with artificial intelligence and automated decision-making and the insights that people have about kind of what are the gaps in our data. But, but you know, there's, there's just so much opportunity. So help us understand, though, I mean, the thing, and this is helpful in terms of, I, I'm seeing, you know, having this conversation, so much value in terms of, you know, data collection and, and study and analysis and how it's determining decisions. Um, but there's, but when you, you know, you look, for example, um, the use of, you know, cards, say you've had a vaccine or not, and the impact of impact of all of that, but, or, or some of the, the collection of data uh, on online. And uh, there's quite mm -hmm. a lot of negative conversation, you know, the, the selling of data. I hear a lot about that in the, you know, in the, in the medical sector, selling your data in the United States being a, 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 a problem um, there's a fear as well isn't there about about the you know the negative side of all this and the negative oh, applications as well as the positive but so so let me give you a couple extreme examples um, and why um, why when I'm not working on things for Techstars the other thing that I'm working on is an investment thesis around investing in the tools that people are building to help us do a better job managing uh, automated decision-making systems from end to end. 
So managing AI for trust and transparency. Sometimes we hear about this as responsible AI or ethical AI. And I think about it as operationalizing those principles and what tools will people need to support them at scale. And the reason it's so important is things, you know, as absurd as I had a young team come in and hopefully this hasn't really gone anywhere and pitch me that they had the perfect tool for measuring team performance and um, it's the most extreme example, team performance for HR and that it would be unbiased. And I said, well, how would it possibly be unbiased? And they said, well, because we're not using data from humans. We're going to use data from apes. And I said, so tell me what, what, what's the dominant, what's, what's the, you know, what, what are the major factors that you think make this really good data for high, for understanding high performance and using ape data to model that and then matching humans against that data. And they said to me, well, dominance. And I thought, this is really not well thought through and, and, and God help anybody who buys this application. It doesn't look under the hood. Right. Um, That's just an, it's kind of an absurdist example, but what you touch on is much more powerful. When I first started hearing people coming in that naively and I was thinking about things like Michael Jordan, the Berkeley professor's example of um, when hardware and software get out of sync with these models, you have problems, right? You go in to get an ultrasound and you don't realize that the, the medical device camera has been upgraded, but the model's still based on data from a lower resolution camera. All of a sudden you have a bunch of false positives telling people they have risk for Down syndrome or some other problem. Like these are going to be profound effects. The surveillance data and facial recognition data. Like we've known about that problem since the early-ish 2000s. In 2009-ish, Nikon made a camera that accidentally told every Asian person they were squinting when they took, were smiling in the photo because they used, they wanted to be one of the first to use facial recognition to get rid of red eye and augment things. And they used a model that was predominantly white faces and didn't recognize the, the way somebody Asian looked smiling, hmm. right? So simple. Fast forward to 2016, 2017, and Joy Bulamwini is at MIT working on a new avatar, and you can see this in her film now, the documentary about her coded bias, trying to make an avatar that would like show you your power animal in your bathroom mirror in the morning when you wanted to get psyched up. And she's a dark uh, African woman, African-American woman. She sat in front of her mirror that had just worked with, for a friend and it didn't recognize her. Uh, and he thought, wait a minute, I saw this problem as an undergraduate eight years ago. I thought somebody smarter than me out in the field would have fixed this problem. But instead, in that time, surveillance applications, facial recognition applications had already migrated to be used in police departments, to be used in housing developments in New York, to watch people coming in for security. The, the, you know, they've become so pervasive mm. and yet the data was highly inaccurate. Mm. So now we have, you know, we have a much better understanding of this, but we have not yet got a lot of tools in place to help companies manage this. 
Yeah. And we're just starting to see come to the fore the first wave of tools for governance of AI, more tools around privacy and assessing data sets for bias, um, tools for synthesizing data so you're not using um, someone's actual medical record, but you can create proxies that are that are representative of people, but not the actual individual. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I, at the moment, I just I'd love. I'm I, I, I'm over fifty, um, fifty two, and uh, ever since I've been fifty, I seem to have been had ads following me around, um, showing a coughing going into an incinerator, and saying you know people are going going crazy for this kind of um, package uh, for your funerals. I've never ever <laughs> um, inquired about a funeral in my life. Um, and I'm a fit, you know, very, very fit, really, for, for my age. Uh, and I don't need to, I don't want to see a coffin going into an incinerator. Yeah. I, well, I think what you know. we see here is that we see the new, um, certainly GDPR and the, in California, the CCPA are, are helping us with this part about raising issues of consumer privacy. I mean, un- unfortunately, we also let the cart out of the horse and we made a kind of a, a deal with the devil early on in the 90s when we said, hey, Google, you can mine everything you want about us for free and YouTube in exchange for us using your service. Mm-hmm. And I think we're now starting to see people say, okay, wait a minute, what does this mean? How do we behave more responsibly around people's privacy? And there's a lot of different companies emerging to try to give us back some more control of our data from alternative social networks to um, different um, biometric or blockchain related systems that would let you parse out access to some of your data, right? Um, I don't think we're, we're not nearly there in terms of solved, but at least the awareness is growing and the, um, the sense of accountability is growing. But one of the things that makes it so interesting to manage AI is that historically we've managed data and then the running of algorithms as like two separate silos within organizations. And when you're talking about AI, you're talking about systems that are continuous, right? Because people and environments and, and outcomes change and you need your model to be able to be updated to reflect those things. So we're really in the place where we need a life cycle set of tools to manage this. And to me, that looks like the cybersecurity market. So I think that, you know, we grew up with a bunch of point tools as we encountered problems like whack-a-mole and then <laughs> eventually grew into a multi-billion dollar industry supporting security and safety in the internet. I think we're going to see a similar type of uh, industry grow up, market grow up, supporting security and safety and um, responsibility and accountability, or what I call trust, transparency and accountability for automated decision-making in AI. Yeah, excellent. We're going to go to commercial break now. So a clue there, maybe even an area that's going to grow in the future. If you're thinking about um, where you're going to focus your attention with uh, a new business, um, we're going to be back in um, a couple of minutes. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about AI because I'd like us to, I, I'm not sure everybody really understands what AI actually is. And, oh. uh, and, and there's... Um, <laughs> There's a lot of, uh, you know, negative associate. Are we going to get taken over by robots and things like that? Um, yeah. So I, I think you're probably the perfect person to put us straight on, on what AI actually is at, at its scope um, in the next sector. So it's actually, I think I, I, I will 
preface that yes. part with saying I am not an AI engineering expert or PhD. I'm a, I would say I'm a layperson, liberal arts person. So I will give you a perspective on how I think about the different parts that are out there and try to answer that question of, do we get taken by robots and why I'm not as interested in that problem as I am in managing this stuff in the real world today and making it operational. Sounds perfect. Back again in just a couple of minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Jennifer Jordan. We've been talking about data, uh, data for good, and uh, I'm getting a set. You know, really got a great appreciation, a better appreciation from Jennifer about you know some of the areas that data is really, really helping us, and uh, and also mindful of uh, some of the, the issues that we're facing today. And you've uh, like the you know the whack-a-mole kind of there's, there's problems that are cropping up, and and over time, you know, the cybersecurity is going to increase. But you started to talk about um, artificial intelligence. I know you're writing a thesis on it. Uh, I know you're not, um, you, you know, you're not um, the the um, prime expert on AI on in the in the globe. But I know you've got a sense of what it is. And I just want, in layman's terms, could you just help people understand? Um, you know what's how you see artificial intelligence, and maybe its scope just right now, so we can you know, understand let it me, a little bit better. Let me try to frame it in a sort of way that I understand it as a layperson, and keeping in mind that really what I am is an investor with a liberal arts background who believes you can learn anything. Right? Who's been <laughs> a technologist for for twenty something years, or worked with technology companies? Um, but the way I think about this is. There's the pursuit of artificial intelligence in the way that we understand it and many, many academics who are really purely working on it think about it, which is this place of can we get computers to approximate humans and human decision making and be independent in some level in doing that, right? That's kind of the pure AI where we're, 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 you know, we're, at, we're on the quest for watch out for Hal, right? And then you have what's happening today 
in businesses. And you, the simplest level was we just automated processes. Like we've seen this column of data before. We know that it needs to be moved over here. Let's do that. That's robotic process automation. Sometimes you hear people talk about RPA. But most of what we're talking about today when we're talking about artificial intelligence is machine learning. And there, what we're doing is we are amassing data, taking a a set of it that we think is representative of that data whole for whatever problem we're trying to solve or, or decision we're trying to make. And we're teaching... And using an out using a computer, we're te- and an out set of algorithms. We're teaching the computer to recognize that training set of data, and even pull out associations from it that then become the decisions. And then we run that against the data that we reserve to see if we got to an accurate place. And if we got to an accurate place, we tune it, iterate it till it's highly accurate. And then we set it out in the world and hopefully it describes what we're trying to describe in the world and makes decisions. Should, yeah. given these parameters, should somebody be offered a loan? Yeah. Given this set of, um, of information about antibodies, which is the one that this drug is most likely to work with, Right. So those, those types of decisions are decisions that we're making. And um, it means that we're talking about systems. So you have data, you have algorithms, you have the hardware that they run on, and then you have the, you have the decision in the world. And does it still describe and accurately reflect the situation we were trying to make the decision about? Yes. And is there something to be learned if it wasn't so accurate? Is there learning that we should take back and new data that we should feed into the system? That makes these things, software is always pretty dynamic, but that makes these highly dynamic. Yeah. Does that make sense? And that's, I think so much about this idea of we're not going to be able to solve all our biases, right? We're not going to be able to eliminate them. And it's not just going to be math that solves it, although it will help. But it is that we need to create the best systems and pieces of of access into this process that we can have so that we can manage it better. So that even though it may still be somewhat black box, some of these things are truly black box. I don't know how the, given all that data, because it's beyond the scale of human comprehension. I don't know how Google exactly decided that you should see, you know, funeral and coffin information right now, Chris Cooper. <laughs> but, but I can understand at least what the inputs and outputs were and what the intention was and then what was the process to get there, mm. right? Yeah. And maybe even revisit the particular decision about you and see was that the right decision, not the best decision, and what, what should I learn from that that I should iterate into the system in the future, right? And creating the tools and mechanisms to do that it, at scale are where we are right now. Yeah. yeah. Because we, we really were in the place of we can make algorithms like art and then profligate them into the world and at a, at a pace and scale we've never seen before, which is Facebook, Google, Amazon. But the management part, for this accountability has not been there yet. 
Excellent. Well, I'm just just hoping it's not so intelligent it knows something about me that I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. My intention is to stay around for a lot longer, yeah. They're increasingly intertwined, right? (laughs) You see something you don't realize, and then your Comcast is showing you the thing that you just said or looked at on your computer. Yeah. (laughs) So um, I'm just mindful that we've got now probably five minutes before we have to wrap up Mm -hmm. today. And I'd just like to move in you know, to help people understand the accelerator a little bit another sure. you know who what sort of people um do you try and attract into the accelerator you know who who perhaps might you like to talk to if anyone's listening to this yeah who do i like to talk to if we're if we're looking at um uh, at tech stars so um tech stars is truly early stage focused accelerator um, you need to not have raised more than $5 million. Um, we're looking for teams that are out there trying to solve big problems that have a clear understanding of their market, a clear focus on the solution they want to bring. And I personally want to look for people who bring a, des- a diverse set of experience and perspective to that effort. And I see diversity in the maybe the broadly most inclusive way, right? Uh, diversity of culture, diversity of experience, diversity of age, diversity of orientation. But it's really about the bent of the team to have that be part of their culture for me. Um, and so it's because I know from my experiences, whether in public companies, big public companies, or early, early stage startups, that having that voice that sees the world differently than you see it when you're building or when you're confronting trying to de-risk as fast as you can to grow a business and get to scale or to get to product market fit, those the squeaky wheel views are just ridiculously important. Yeah, yeah. So building a culture that can, can um, you know, tolerate that questioning and those diversity of perspectives to me, is a key differentiator and a key pat- part of the success. Really but you, like everything, I look for you know things that could be venture scale opportunities, real businesses, um, clear focus and product, exceptional team, but but in the most broadly and inclusive way. Yeah, and you, so you, if you're working on one of those things. You, you need to take a look at the TechStars roster and. Um, or reach out to me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and let me know about the company. Try to see where you best fit because TechStars is a broad global network with a bunch of accelerators. So there is a, there has been a, a TechStars London, for example. Mm. Mm. So, so this is a system whereby people, young, young, young businesses, they, they pitch an idea to a series of in, in a panel at Barclays and yep. they may, and they may, may win, it, win it. Not. Revenue or a little bit of revenue, like first customers, is a is a typical stage that we see. So let me give you an example right from the UK. There's a woman named Julianne Sloan and her co-founder CTO Irina Dumanescu, who are building a company called Nosa Data. Nosa Data helps corporations that are trying to respond to all the different requests for reporting on their environmental, social, and governance performance, what people call ESG, um, which now some 55 
billion more dollars just in last year is being screened and invested according to these environmental, social, and governance principles. And it means that companies are scrambling to respond to their investors' needs to understand where they are and reporting those metrics. And NOSA makes a software SaaS platform that makes it easy for companies to report, lets them benchmark themselves against their peers and, and um, benchmark them, like understand which investors care about which sets of this, this governance data, environmental and governance data. And she was, you know, two founders coming into our Techstars program had raised a little bit of pre-seed capital had the beginning of a product and was in conversations with a, a few potential customers. Exiting the program just last week, we're now one week out as of yesterday, she has her first signed customer. She has a potential channel partnership for 150 new customers. Wow. She, has, um, she has her product much better defined and she has increased her team. She'll have seven people on her team. Okay. So this is an example of, you know, the hitting somebody at the stage where we can give the most help in teaching their, their company muscles. Excellent. Well, we've got to end there. We've only got one minute left now. Um, just, you know, if you want to find out more about Jennifer Jordan, you know, go to um, join her on LinkedIn, but also you can check out techstars.com and, uh, and you'll find uh, more That's information great. about. Find me uh, at the New York Barclays or Female Founders First with Techstars and Barclays. Fantastic. Now, um, got about 15, 20 seconds. Do you have a final message you'd like to leave us with? I would say that uh, the number one thing is if you're building applications with data, pay attention to what data you have and where are the gaps. And then seriously think about looking at your system to invest in trust and transparency and accountability so you can manage your decisions in the best way possible. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Jennifer, on the, the whole conversation. Fascinating. And uh, on next week's show, we've got Arnon Barnes. Um, Arnon is uh, an internationally recognized mentor, works all over the place with people like T. Harbecker, et cetera. And uh, he'll be chatting to me next week, um, probably about uh, growing businesses, I think. Um, so do join us next week. And uh, once again, a huge thank you to Jennifer Jordan. Been Chris, thank you so much. I'll be listening. Great. We thank you for listening to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.